Welcome to Creatives Do Money. Each week we explore the topics of everyday money management, solo small business ownership, and how we're fueling our creative futures. I'm your host, Eowyn Levine, money coach, personal finance nerd, long-time self-employed massage therapist, and watermelon enthusiast. And I'm on a mission to help you build the lasting financial stability that frees you up to do your creative work without hustling anxiously for the next dollar. This episode is a good one, folks, and I'm so glad I get to share it finally. My guest today, Amy Koretsky, and I talk about punk damage and letting go of poverty mindset, what it's like to take a month off work each year to escape the Minnesota winter, no small feat for someone self-employed in a service-based business. Amy shares her commitment to affordable pricing and accessibility as a whole and how her approach is evolving over time and what she's learning. We get into what it's like to purchase a home when you and your spouse are both self-employed. We touch on the guilt and shame that can come up with unearned privilege, even when we're doing our best to use our privilege to create the change we wish to see in the world. We get into some really juicy stuff. Amy is a breathwork facilitator and wellness coach for mind, body, and business, working on occupied and unceded Dakota and Anishinaabe territory. Her work is focused on helping radical business owners thrive in the liminal space between work and life. She believes that the health of our physical and emotional bodies are inextricably tied to the health of our businesses, and that when we work in this overlap, we can build businesses that are heart-centered and healing for both the individual and the collective. When she's not supporting others, she's hiking in the woods with her pup, playing nerdy board games, or pulling tarot cards. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Amy, I'm so grateful you're here and that we're going to talk about money and running multiple businesses (laughs) and all this good stuff. Thank you. I'm excited to be here too. Yeah. Take us to a pivotal moment in your life when your relationship with money and finances changed in a significant way. I actually have two two stories in my head that when I knew that you were going to be asking me this question, these were the things that like popped up first. And one of them is from when I was pretty young and I think it shaped some of my unconscious beliefs about money. And then one of them was actually after I'd been running my business for a while and it shaped what I now consider my conscious beliefs around money. And so the first one is I was probably 10 years old or so. I I grew up in a reasonably sized, like normal suburban United States home. Uh, It was a townhouse. We lived in a suburban community. By no means was it an extraordinarily large home, but by no means was I ever like lacking in structure, safety, support in that means when it came to money. And when I was about 10 years old, my parents decided to build a house. And I remember like it was exciting and, and I got to tell my parents like that I wanted a window seat in my bedroom, you know, like little cute things like that. And I remember going to the site when there was a big hole in the ground, basically. And my dad would make jokes, like total dad jokes, where that this was the big pit that we were just like throwing our money into. Like, have you ever seen that like 1980s uh, movie, The Money Pit? With Tom Hanks. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. He was like basically making these jokes that this is a big hole that we're just like throwing all this money into. And he would make jokes like, 
Because, you know, it's expensive to build a house. And I think that it was more expensive than he was realizing. And he grew up without a lot of means. He grew up in a, a very low-income household when he was young. And he would make jokes that like, oh, well, we can do this, but then we're just going to have to only have one meal a day for the next two weeks or things like that. And like, you know, it's a, just a dad joke. But I was like nine or 10 years old, not really understanding and being like, then why are we doing this? If like, if it's going to make us, you know, not be able to have the things that we need in life. And I think that at the time, I didn't quite understand the impact that some of those comments had left on me, but it really got me making decisions as I grew older that were a little bit more based out of fear than based out of like trust and all of that. And I also, I think I really romanticized uh, struggle and I really romanticized poverty, the poverty mindset as I grew up. I, um, as I was young, you know, I grew up um, in a fairly well off higher middle middle class community, a Jewish community. And I think that I internalized a lot of beliefs around what that meant. And I didn't always feel like I belonged in my community. I I was very rebellious. I was very artistic. I was very like all these kind of quirky things that didn't quite fit with my peers or with like my parents' friends and that that community. And I think I ended up internalizing a lot of um, internalized anti-Semitism when it came to money beliefs. And so I wanted to really remove myself from the community that I didn't feel connected to. And I I attracted to much more like punk art DIY culture, which really did romanticize poverty mindsets in a lot of ways and like $5 shows and you know, dumpster diving, like all these things that really shaped my viewpoints around money when I was younger. And this like money being evil, money being bad, like money is the root of all evil, like all those things. And, and so that's kind of my unconscious beliefs that I held about money for a really long time. And then when I was maybe a year or so into running my first like real solo business, which was an acupuncture studios, a, a solo acupuncture um, clinic. And I realized that I like, I could pay my rent, like my clinic rent. I could pay all the, like I could do the minimal things, but I had to buy my groceries at the discount grocery store. Like I had to go to Target to pick up things where maybe, or like even to Walmart. And like, I do not subscribe to the values of Walmart or any of those things. And I was like, okay, well, what I actually believe to be true around my values. Like I'm not, I'm not able to use money in the way that supports my values because I don't have enough of it. And so like, if money really is evil, it's like actually not having money right now is making me invest in these companies that I don't believe in that I don't, I don't align with. And so I was in the shower one day and it was just as simple as just like being in the shower and like shampooing my hair. And all of a sudden something clicked where I was like, I want a CSA this year. Like I want to get my vegetables through a CSA and I can't afford it. And so like, why, how can I make this work so that I can actually have enough money to like be investing in the farmers that I want to invest in? How can I, you know, how can I make this work? And so there was really no like impetus for that. It was just like a light bulb moment when I was in the shower one day. Ah, we have so many ways we can (laughs) go from here. This is exciting. Yeah, I... 
I guess I want to just start by saying that I really share that realization that if I stay at a subsistent level, subsistence level of income, I am far less able to contribute to the world that I want to see. And yeah. I have less agency. I have less ability to support the artists I want to support and donate to causes and buy the shampoo that didn't torture the rabbits, you know, whatever it is. Totally. Like all of those things. I really feel you on that. And I think it's a huge and important moment to come to, especially when you have grown up in this kind of counter-cultural imprint like you're talking about. You called it was it punk culture? No, you had a specific yeah, punk, a specific culture. punk culture. Oh, so there's a phrase and I, I don't remember where it originates, but my friend Lacey uses it a lot and I, I love it. And it's called punk damage. And it's oh. like this, um, it's the resulting financial instability that so many people who grew up in, in as punks now live with. I don't know if everyone who, you know, is, was a teenage punk would agree with me, but I feel like there are a lot of people, uh, specifically people who run their own businesses now who were punk kids when they were younger. And I think that that's, I think a lot of punk kids actually own their own businesses because a lot of our values were that like, we didn't, we didn't want to subscribe to the normative cultural overtones and the patriarchal and the, you know, all the oppressive societal structures out there. We really rebelled against a lot of those. And so then that, that continued on as we grew up and found our own ways of making income instead of uh, working for the man. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, it's about feeling into, you know, what's really true and what are just these beliefs that I've absorbed, you know, from my surroundings and my culture and my friends and my colleagues and my peers. And we kind of get to this moment of just asking ourselves, is this really true? Is this, is this really correct that by let's say not investing in the stock market, I am making a significant difference to, I don't know, supporting oil companies or whatever it might be. Like is my decision to not do that and to not engage in this quote unquote conventional thing in life really having the impact that I want it to have? I think it's, yeah, there are deep questions and they're not easily answered. And I think we all answer them for ourselves, I guess. But right. I feel like it's it's a moment in adulting where we start asking ourselves those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can only ever, you know, speak from my own experience, but but that was really true for me of getting to a point in my life where, I realized, you know, I I realized at some point that money isn't necessarily evil, but money does give access. Money gives access and money can give some power. And I do not subscribe to power over power under systems, but I do believe that, that people who have not had access to power need access to power in order to stabilize, to regulate, to, to, I'm trying to, what I'm like envisioning in my head is like moving from this like graph that has like peaks and valleys to something that's just much much more flat, much more like supportive and even and equal. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, money increases your access to power, but it's also just money increases your access to ease and to wellness and to health and to, yeah, stability, I think is what you're speaking to. 
And I think, you know, we've both come up against this question of who has access to healthcare, specifically, you know, in the wellness industry, tends to be like, you know, middle class white folk who can get massage and acupuncture. And I know it's really important to you to make your work accessible in a variety of different ways. But just back to this question of, yeah, it's almost like stepping away from the cycle of, yeah, things are awesome. Oh my God, how am I going to cope? Yeah, this is really cool. No. And feast or famine. Feast or famine. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more about accessibility in general and have you speak to that and how that plays into how you structure your businesses. But the the peaks and valleys thing makes me think about profit first as well. So we're going to circle around Mm. to using profit first in your business as a way of stabilizing your finances and increasing your agency and your sort of constant ability. But let's, let's start with this question of accessibility. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and how you incorporate it. So I... I'm an experimenter. Like that's very much, I think I'm not really into human design that much, but I like was recently told that something about my human design means that like I I learned through experimentation, which I very much feel is true. And I, um, I feel grateful for that because I don't think that all business owners innately feel excited or trusting about experimenting. And there can be a lot of fear in that. But for me, it's something that I thrive off of, of like trying something and being willing to have it fail and then try something else. And so I'll start by saying that because I've tried a lot of different ways of increasing accessibility. And by no means do I feel like I have found the magic equation that works, but I'm willing to continue to try and different different avenues. So I'll start by saying that. I also want to acknowledge that in acupuncture, one of the important ancestors of acupuncture here in the United States are the Lincoln Detox Center out in New York, which was run by the Young Lords, by the Black Panthers. Um, It was this movement for bringing access to, to people to Get clean, basically. There's a really great documentary out there right now called Dope is Death. And that talks about the whole history of ear acupuncture, ear acupuncture as part of the detox center and as part of accessibility and as an alternative to methadone clinics. And so access to care through acupuncture like has a long lineage here in the United States through, through that, through that lineage. And so I first got interested in acupuncture for community acupuncture, which, you know, comes from that same lineage. And there's a whole school out in Portland that basically is based off of that theory, that dogma, all of that. But community acupuncture in general is this idea that you have several people in a group setting receiving care all together at once. And by by treating many people at the same time, um, you're able to like lower the cost of care, but still support the overhead of the business slash, you know, paying people. Um, And and originally when I went into acupuncture school, I thought I was going to be a community acupuncturist. Like that's what I thought I was going to do. I was really committed to that style of care, that style of access. However, when I was in school and I was in my externships and internships, I realized that that wasn't, for me personally, the best way uh, for me to be supporting my patients. I found that the patients that wanted to work with me really wanted to talk about very private things, a lot of mental health 
struggles and a lot of digestive things, which can feel really embarrassing when they're talking about it in a public setting. And I have a history of um, digestive illness myself. I've got Crohn's disease. It's an autoimmune disease of the gut. I personally don't find any of these things embarrassing. I will talk about poop all day long to the public, to anyone, whoever. Um, But that's not the case for everyone. And the people that really wanted to talk to me, they wanted uh, some privacy. They wanted some intimacy. They wanted a bit more one-on-one time. And so I shifted and I I quickly ended up moving to a private practice that was one-on-one. And so then at that point, I was like, okay, well, how do I then increase access? Because I thought I was going to be doing it in this one way, but now I'm actually doing this completely different business model. So how do I still make it accessible? And so I toyed around with some reduced rates, some sliding scale. You know, there's a lot of information out there in the world about sliding scale rates. You know, currently where I've landed at in our, so I have two businesses. I don't know if that got mentioned in the introduction, but I, I run a um, acupuncture. I co-own an acupuncture clinic that has employees, like W two employees, in downtown Minneapolis called Constellation Acupuncture and Healing Arts. I also have a business coaching practice that's more based in breathwork, and that's like an online solo business. And I've, I do accessibility in both arenas, but in the acupuncture clinic right now, we've really been. We've really been focused over the last year of trying to figure out how to make acupuncture accessible to the, how to make private solo acupuncture accessible to everyone who needs it, while also understanding the the barriers of access that go beyond financial means, because not everybody feels comfortable walking into an acupuncture clinic. You know, traditionally in in this city that we live in, because there are two acupuncture schools here, there are a lot of acupuncturists. And there are a lot of acupuncturists of East Asian descent, but there's a lot of acupuncturists that are white. And then there's a handful of acupuncturists that are, are not white and are not East Asian. But overwhelmingly, a lot of the acupuncturists here are white. And so a lot of, I've had conversations with friends where it's like, I'd never considered like so-and-so had never considered going to an acupuncture clinic before because they just assumed it was for like middle-aged white women sort of thing. So it's, it's considering access, not just in terms of financial means, but also in terms of uh, lots of different inclusions, identity inclusions. And here we are on this podcast talking about money. So I'm going to focus the access parts yeah. in terms of money. But so we have a, a program called like Pay It Forward. By no means are we the first to ever consider a program like this. This is, has long history, but we're doing a pay it forward program where uh, when people come to their sessions, instead of giving the option of giving a tip, they can put into this fund that like pays it forward. I've always considered acupuncture more of a medical service than a like relaxation service of any sort. So I personally, even when I was like a solo practitioner, I never took tips for my work because I don't tip my dentist. I don't tip my dermatologist, you know, like it's a medical service. However, then when we decided that we needed to figure out a way to raise money to then support the reduced rate services, this is how we decided to do it. So now when people come in, they can give an extra $20. And basically, financially speaking, we have a reduced rate at the clinic. It's 40% reduction in cost. And it's just like an across the board 40%. We don't have hoops that anyone has to like jump through in order to access that reduced rate, but we do have like general guidelines of like, if you meet these guidelines, you self-identify with these guidelines, then you can have the reduced rate, no questions asked, no, like, you know, you don't have to like show us your tax returns or show us your like, 
you know, your, your medical access card or anything like that. You can just say, I qualify for this and then we're going to give it to you. And then the $20 that someone pays it forward covers $18 of that covers the cost so that we are actually paying our acupuncturist the full rate so that our, our employees are not suffering or sufferings, maybe not the right word, but they're, they're not bearing the financial brunt of the reduced rate. Um, and then the other $2 goes towards like helping some offset some of the you know office expenses and whatnot. But really it's the office that is taking the financial um, weight of that hurdle. And that's something that we do in the future. Like one of my personal goals as the co-owner of the clinic is to actually be moving into more of like a visionary role in the next couple of years where I come up with other sources of revenue for the clinic so that, because right now we are very much a fee-for-service clinic. And so if we're going to do reduced rate, we need to figure out how to have our expenses paid for. And I want to, and so we're very much like one-to-one right now. I did do one online program like at the beginning of the pandemic, like right before the pandemic started and going into the first couple months of the pandemic. And that was successful in a lot of ways. And I I want to bring forward more group programs like that so that we are offsetting finances. But but yeah, so that's where we've landed right now. Mm, I love that. And I, if I remember rightly, when we had an exchange before we came to record, you mentioned similar accessibility considerations for a recent launch that you did for your online business. Take us through that. Yeah. So that one was um, a very different way of doing it. Instead of just having like a reduced rate or some sort of sliding scale, I've always personally struggled with sliding scale as a payer, like as a receiver of services from other people that do sliding scale. Cause I, um, I'm always like worried that I'm like landing myself in the wrong place. Like I have a hard time self-selecting where to be in the scale. And that's even when people have given like really clear language around like how to find it. But for me, I find that like some months I, I do like, I can go on vacation. I can do all these things. And I very much am at the top of the sliding scale. But then for other reasons, like medical reasons or or other reasons, I maybe haven't worked for a month or two. And so I'm at the lower end of the scale and I've always had a hard time like going back and forth in there. And so I wanted to do something kind of different. And for folks who are interested, I'm going to butcher their name because I'm really bad at like French pronunciations, but Bear a Bear, I think is how you say it. Um, they had a online workshop called Freely. And it was basically anti-capitalistic pricing structures. And I had taken it a couple years ago. It was a lot of things I already already knew, but also a lot of things that got me thinking in like new and different ways and kind of opened my eyes to different possibilities. And so when I did this recent launch, it was really going to be one of the first programs I had done where whether or not there were 10 people there or there were 100 people there, it wasn't really going to change my effort level. Like it would change a little bit of like my space holding. If I had a hundred people there, that definitely takes more energy than if it's 10 people, but it wasn't like it was going to take more time. It wasn't going to take me more money. It wasn't going to take anything like that. And so it was the first time that I'd really offered something that it didn't really matter to me where someone like landed if they self-selected on a scale. And so I decided to do, I set a price that felt fair for me it felt like a it was a low enough price that it was like a super easy hell yes for people but also it was enough that if i had gotten 100 people in there i'd be like 
holy shit, this is amazing. I just like made 10 grand somehow. Like how did this even happen? Because it was priced at $111 and it was a three month quarterly co-working. So people are meeting every week for three months. And so I felt like it was a very fair price. And what I decided to do is that for every full price ticket sold, I was going to offer a pay what you can. And not like a sliding scale, like you're, you know, as low as this or as high as this, but just like whatever felt right for that person and whatever they could afford, whatever they could. My goal, like my ultimate goal would be like, I would love to get 50 people in at the full price rate and then another 50 people in at the pay what you can. And I was like, that would be amazing. Like, I would love that so much. But I also had like more realistic, like financial goal where like financially I wanted to make three grand. That's what I wanted to make with it. It like felt like a good baseline for me. And so that was going to be like 30-ish people at the full time rate. What ended up happening is that I ended up getting, part of this was like an accident on my part. When I set it up in Acuity, there's a way to set it up with like a pay what you can. And I forgot that I had made this appointment, duplicated off a different thing that was pay what you can, whatever. And so I had like the full price right there. Plus there was like a pay what you can button under there. So when the first person signed up, they paid more than $111. And I was like, oh, how did that? Oh, it looks like I I gave people the option to pay even more. And this person paid even more. So in the end, I had 27 people sign up at the like 111 price with several of those people paying more than 111. And then I had, I had, what was, what did I say? I had 27 at the full price. And then I had 10 people at the pay what you can price with one person being at $0 and then other people being up to like $60, $70 or so. And basically in the end, at the very end of the whole thing, I had 37 people in this program and I basically made $3,700. So I made exactly what I would have made if, all 37 of those people had paid the full price. And yet we had 10 people that got to pay exactly what they needed to pay in that moment. Mm, Beautiful. It was totally this like, like this message from spirit being like, look, like you actually can do things in this way. And it is equally as supportive for everyone involved. It's supportive for you because you're making the, the money that you wanted to make. And it's supportive for the people joining that maybe wouldn't have had access to it before. Beautiful. I'm inspired. I'm literally asking myself some of these questions right now as I prepare to start teaching online. And it's encouraging to hear connected success coming up for people doing things differently. I'm here for that. Yeah. And like clapping. Yeah. I mean, it made me really excited too to be like, oh, wow. I mean, like this really could be a feasible financial model for me in a greater capacity. You know, I have, I, I have these like goals and ideas of making this co-working program something bigger, more of like a quarterly membership site where they're also getting, you know, monthly workshops or monthly breathwork or things. And I still feel like there's a way that I can do this and make it an easy financial hell yes, like an easy yes, like have it that accessible financially and still have pay what you can spots and know that it's going to work out. So yeah, something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Yeah. Is there anything that you're going to change? I, if I remember you're going to launch another round of co-working sometime soon, I know this because I have signed up to say, <laughs> tell me about it. Um, I'm curious if you will do anything different when it comes to pricing or structuring it. So the first round, 
the first round, it was like the very first day of our co-working, there was a three-hour in-person workshop. And then we had weekly co-working after that. And the price was $111. The thing that I'm doing differently this time for my own sanity and like time and everything like that is I took the workshop and I edited it down in YouTube. So now instead of it being a live workshop, people will just have access to it whenever, which I actually think, you know, I I could definitely see some people being disappointed by that and not having like the live session. But also when we're talking about access, a live session on a Thursday morning, not everyone has access to three hours of their Thursday morning to do a workshop. Not everyone has childcare access to watch their kids while they're doing a breathwork session. You know, not everyone, there's a lot of different reasons why this actually could increase the access in that way as well. So that's the only thing that's changing this for this next cycle. But I do have like bigger plans in my head for future cycles after that. Yeah. But like I said, I run two businesses. I have a lot of my plates. I, I, <laughs> my, one of my like words of the year this year is just, easy. Like I want to try to make things more easy and more fun. And I think that that that's okay. I think for a long time, I had this belief that I had to work really, really hard for every single penny that I got. And I overworked myself. I'm a Capricorn rising. So I like to work. Like that's not a problem. I like to do it, but I can easily overdo it. And what I'm really trying to do right now is give myself permission to have making money feel kind of easy. And even as I say this right now, I can like see my face in the video. I'm like making this like grimace, <laughs> like, do I actually believe this yet? But yes. I'm trying to believe it. Yeah. I feel you on that cringeworthy thing. And this, this sense that you have to earn your money and that you have to work hard to get money. And I, I think there's some, I think there's some substance to feeling Feeling alert when you hear the message about money, making money being easy, partly because in the online business world, especially, there are folks saying, give me your email and $200 and I'm going to tell you how to make a million dollars in your sleep. Totally. Right. So that's kind of the shadow side of this gesture of money being easy. Totally. And I have kind of a rule for myself, which is if this marketing or sales advice, whatever I'm trying to learn, wouldn't apply to a plumber, then I feel suspicious. Like, oh, I love I want, that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I want the advice. Like, when I started thinking about helping folks with, you know, managing their personal finances in particular, if they're self employed, I started to look around at, okay, how do you market? What does it look like to work with people online doing coaching? I also did a health coach training like you did. I did the ubiquitous IIN training. Never ended up being a health coach, but one of my real questions around it all was, how do you make money? So I was looking at other coaches saying, this is how you make money. And the answer was always just raise your prices, raise your prices, raise your prices, raise your prices. And, you know, you're amazing. You're so good at what you do. And because you're amazing, you can charge $1,500 for whatever it is, a VIP day. I'm not against charging a lot of money when you're genuinely providing a lot of value, but I want the advice to be like valid for a plumber as well. (laughs) Like that's, yeah, that's what I always come back to. And so all of this is to say, I think that I understand where you're like, where the alarm bells go off when you say something like, I want making money to feel easy. But I think there's real wisdom there as well, because 
the reason that we feel like we have to struggle to make money is because we live in a capitalist system yeah. that quantifies our labor and that's problematic in itself. So yeah. totally. And it's, and it's funny because when I think about this, this co-working group, it's not that I'm not doing work. Like I still did all the work of creating the workshop, which like is a valuable workshop in a lot of ways. Like a lot of people walked away with that, with like so much insight and like clarity and focus. It's not that I don't do the work of holding the space. It's not that I don't do the work of creating the landing page and doing all of the making the playlists every week and and leading people through breath work and holding that container that allows people to feel safe and supported. Like that's a lot of work. It's just that this offering also feels fun, which like, you know, I think that so often even if we love our jobs, they still feel like a job at the end of the day, a lot of times. And that's not a problem. Like, that's fine. But it was so great to get off the Zoom call on our first, after the workshop was over, like our first just like regular co-working day. It was so gl- great to get off of that and just have a huge smile on my face. Be like, I just really enjoyed that. Like, that was fun. Like, it was still work, but it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And that plays into easy as well. Yeah. I think, you know, the experience of easy is how do we relate to it? You know, ease is about comfort and enjoyment as much as lack of effort, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So I have two questions bubbling in me. One is about, I'm especially just interested in the ways that you are working towards doing business differently. And I'm wondering and it doesn't have to be finance related, but I'm wondering if there are any other sort of strong themes that are coming up for you where you are intentionally working to mess with the status quo. Let's put it that way. Yeah. What's coming up to the top of my head? The example I just gave of the pay what you can, I feel like that's a pretty big one for me right now. Um, Another thing for me is I recently... And when I say recently, I mean uh, the beginning of of the year in January, had surgery, and I took a full two months off of work. I probably mm. could have gone back to work after. I definitely couldn't have gone back in like three weeks. It like four weeks mm. would have been the earliest, but I could have. Like I could have made mm. that work. It would have been a struggle in my body, but I could have done it. And I, but I didn't. I specifically took two months off. I planned in advance, both from a client perspective. So all my clients knew that I wasn't going to be available, that we were going to put our work on pause. I saved up money so that not only could I like pay my health insurance bills, which are exorbitant, but also um, survive financially for those couple months being off. You know, so really giving myself permission to be, hmm, what's the word I want to use? Holding pattern is not the phrase that I want to use, but for some reason, it's the one that's coming up. But just like, instead of always trying to grow, like trying to get more people joining my classes or to get more clients or to like more, 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 I really gave myself permission to know what my my enough was and to feel like I was enough staying within that enough number. That's something right there. Mm. Take us into how you prepared financially 
to take so much time off. What was the timescape you're talking about? How far in advance did you know you were having surgery? Yeah. What's fi- what financial steps did you take to prepare? Mm, okay, so a couple things. One, for many years, my my acupuncture income was my like breadwinning income, and my coaching income was kind of like my side hustle. And then maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, it ended up being, it was like more at 50-50. And my goal eventually is to have most of my income coming in through coaching and actually be more in that visionary role in the acupuncture business and not be in person doing acupuncture. And so for a while, for a significant amount of time, I've actually been saving up money, like my coaching income money. I've been trying to save that so that I could have a buffer of what I considered like four months of acupuncture income. So that if at some point I was like, okay, I'm I'm done being here in the clinic here, we've like hired a new acupuncturist so that like patients are cared for, but like, I'm just going to be in this ownership role, but not actually get paid for that work right now until I do the visionary work of figuring out how to pay for myself in this role, I would have like four months of buffer. So I already had like for years now, like started saving up for that. And then Corona hit, coronavirus. And we had to close the clinic. In the We closed for a couple months in the beginning. We were actually one of the first acupuncture clinics in Minneapolis to close before the state made us close because we were concerned for our patients and we took this really seriously. And so, you know, I have lots of complicated feelings about this, but I'm also grateful that I qualified for unemployment at that point in time. And that like extra $600 a week was not something that I technically needed. So in the beginning, I was actually redistributing a lot of that money to mutual aid funds. I hired a a business coach, my friend, Erica Corday, who is a amazing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion business coach. So I was like redistributing some of that money by hiring Black women for services and work. I, I was doing all these different ways of like spending that money. And then in June, my neck kind of like went out again and I was in like major, major pain. And I ended up going and getting, I've had neck surgery in the past. This is like a long history for me, but basically the time had come where the doctors were like, you actually like your spinal cord is getting compressed on and you're losing your balance. And like, you need to have surgery. And I was like, okay, this is going to happen. And so I was able to take some of that unemployment money and save it. And I was able to take some of that other like, you know, coronavirus money that was like flowing freely at that point in time and and save some of it. And so some of it was like me saving in advance. Some of it was this government assistance that I feel really, really, really grateful for and definitely feels like divine timing in some ways because the doctors have been telling me to get the surgery for eight years. But this was the year that like Mm -hmm. had to happen. And this was the year that like I got this, I got one of these like letters from the unemployment office here because I had applied for unemployment originally, but since I was the owner of the business, I wasn't eligible. And then the something, you know, like one of the laws changed that made it eligible. And all of a sudden I got this like letter in the mail that was like, according to our ref- our records, you have been underpaid like X amount of dollars. And I was like, yeah, spirit, I have been underpaid this <laughs> amount of money. Like it felt like this divine letter being like, we see all the work that you've been doing. Like here, we're going to financially support you in that. So in June, I had made the decision to get surgery, but the surgery wasn't going to be until January. So I gave myself several months buffer to 
work with my business partner of like who is going to delegate what tasks and how to make it work financially. From a business perspective, you had mentioned earlier about profit first, and that's something that we've used in our business since the business started. Mm. And so we felt really grateful that even though we had to close for two months, we were able to be solvent because we had enough of a buffer in our operating expense count to pay for the things we needed to pay before we were able to get PPP money. So So that means when did this business start? How long have you been using Profit First? I had a solo business practice, acupuncture, and then my current business partner, when she graduated from acupuncture school, she rented from me like two days a week. And then we did that for a couple, like a year or so. And then a different space in our building opened up and it was kind of like our dream space. We were like, if that space ever opens up, that would make a great clinic. And then one day it did. And so we got the opportunity to have it, but neither of us could have afforded to do it on our own. And we were witches. Like I'll just come out and say it. We're both witches. And so we sat down with a deck of tarot and basically were like, all right, how should we do this? And we ran a couple different scenarios. Like, do I take on the space and have her be an employee? Does she take on the space? Do we like, whatever, do we merge our practices together? And the tarot was just like, merge your practices together. You need to be business partners. And we did, and we haven't looked back since. And that was in 2017. Beautiful. (laughs) So like, I will say that my, um, and this is even true with my coaching clients, like my coaching sessions, they are equally witchy as they are practical. I'm a Capricorn Mm -hmm. rising. I'm very practical. I know how to talk through and problem solve things, but I also pull tarot cards and we use breath work. And there's, I, I believe that in order to combat the, combat the, the three things of white supremacy, the patriarchy and capitalism, like those three things are always trying to tell us how to do things. They're always trying to pull us away from our intuition to disconnect us from each other. You know, they're trying to like pit us against each other. And I feel like the best way to combat all three of those is to actually reconnect with ourselves, reconnect with each other to like find trust and support as opposed to fear and antagonism. And I feel like some of the best ways to do that is through the breath, through tarot, through those different tools that we use to find connection with our inner knowing. So a lot of my work is based in that. Mm, I love that. And I do it for my own business. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like that's how I make decisions in my own business. It's not just I'm offering that to other people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finding that connection to yourself and to the higher powers that support us. That's, it's almost like it, it integrates your business into your life as a whole and it integrates you into your, and it's an integration practice for me. That's how it feels. Yeah. I mean, one of my like core tenants of my business is that our businesses and our the health of our business and the health of ourselves as people are inextricably tied. Yes. And so we can't separate them. Like we, we are our businesses in a lot of ways. And it doesn't mean that our life, our business has to be consuming our life, but it just means that what happens in one affects the other. Yeah, no doubt. I want to go back briefly to money stuff in the sense, so I'm familiar with Profit First as essentially it's a planning process that you walk through. So I there's an episode a few episodes ago specifically about Profit First, and I'll I'll link to the kind of what is it and how does it work in the show notes if, if folks want to just inform themselves. So I'm going to assume a basic understanding, but 
So the basic idea is there's money in your bank account. What do you do with it? And it's a planning process that you go through. It's a structure that you use. And I'm curious if you do anything similar in your personal finances. Give us a picture of how you handle your money in your personal life. Not at all the same. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me about the contrast. In our business, I use Profit First both for my personal coaching business and for the clinic. And in both of them, it's very structured. Like we we definitely have our percentages um, and we use those percentages to really support our values. So like when we wanted to bring on a front desk staff person, we knew that we were going to have to save up for that because we wanted to pay them a living wage. We weren't going to be like paying them minimum wage or anything. Like how do we actually support someone that's going to be supporting our business? So we were able to like shift our percentages around so that we could actually save some of that money before we brought on the new person so that we knew we could afford them. We also have a percentage. We have an account that is, I call it the Sadaka account, which is like a Hebrew word for giving back. It's about like supporting. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like using the word charity necessarily, but it basically it's like a redistribution fund. Yeah. So we do like very structured things in the business. And then my personal life is just like, there's a checking account and there's like a savings account and it is not at all organized in that way. I mean, my, my husband is also a business owner, which is awesome because like our date nights are basically like us talking business most of the time, which I really (laughs) actually enjoy doing, but it's also makes tax time really complicated. (laughs) I think one, one unconscious belief about money that I grew up with from my parents that I actually really am grateful for is that my parents always had like a joint checking account and then they each had their own separate checking accounts. So like if my dad wanted to like go buy some new tech toy or like an iPhone when they first came out and my mom like thinks that that's like maybe a waste of money in the beginning, like whatever, <laughs> he has his own checking account, he can spend his money in that way versus like the home expenses coming together. So my husband and I do the same thing where we each put money into the joint, but then I have my own thing. So like. I do this thing every year. Well, not this last year because of COVID, but normally I take a month off in the wintertime because we live in Minnesota and it's fucking Mm. cold here and I (laughs) hate it. And I take a month off in the winter and I go to California. I visit family out there. I visit friends out there. I have a lot of free places to stay. So I make it like, you know, it's not some extravagant use of money, but but it costs money. And I save up for it every year because it is like one of my top priorities is to be able to take a month off and go do that. And so like my husband and I have chosen not to have children. That was like a very intentional choice of ours. So I can leave for a month and my husband is like totally cool with taking care of the house and like whatever. But so yeah, there's no real structure in it. I've tried. Yeah. I tried doing YNAB. Is that what everyone loves? Yeah. 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 You need a budget. Yeah. The software. Oof. That is like (laughs) too... Too nitpicky for me. I What I love about Profit First is that there are these big buckets. And so it's like anything in operating expenses is just in this bucket. And in that way, I guess like we kind of do something like that because we have like a couple savings accounts. There's, you know, one that's a little bit more focused on health insurance, car insurance, those sort of like mm. regular expenses that are like bigger ticket item expenses. And then we have a savings account that is like longer term saving of like, you know, emergency fund sort of saving or like if mm-hmm. if we need a new roof sort of saving, we've got that sort of thing. But that's really it. Yeah. 
Speaking of new roof, what was it like <laughs> buying a house when you're both self-employed? Yeah, it was really shitty. Really, really shitty. Like, I, I'm an open book. So, like, full transparency here. When we bought our house, which was in 2015, I still had so much of a debt-to-income ratio. And my husband's business, like, wasn't as successful as it is now that they wouldn't actually give us a loan. And so we had to have my parents co Mm-hmm. Not co-sign it because they weren't even doing co-signing anymore because it was after the financial crash, but they actually had to like co-be on the mortgage with us, even though they did not like pay for it. Like all of the down payment was our money. We paid the mortgage every month. There was no like financial investment from my parents other than the fact that they were whatever that's called, like promising that it could mm-hmm. get paid for. And then actually just a couple months ago, because interest rates are so low and because my debt to income ratio isn't nearly as bad right now. And my husband's business is way more successful than it was then. And mine is too, that we were able to refinance. Um, Mm. So we actually refinanced my parents off of the loan just a couple months ago. And that was still challenging, but not terrible. It's a lot of paperwork. It's like more paperwork than I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds daunting but positive nonetheless in the end well and it's weird because it's covid too so it's like not only are we small business owners but we're small business owners that have had our businesses impacted by covid so we had to like write these weird letters explaining why our incomes had been higher in 2019 versus 2020 and like i mean it's obvious duh it's covid like why do you think (laughs) our income is lower but you had to we had to write these like letters of explanation explaining like why we believed that it was going to go back up. Would you share a bit about why your debt to income ratio is so different? Have you been intentionally paying off debt or is it simply that your income is higher? What does that look like? Yeah. So that is something that I've actually been like really working on from a emotional standpoint. So here's the story. My grandfather had land up North in Minnesota And he had property and my mom and uncle inherited it after he passed away. And they didn't want to, they no longer were in a place where they wanted to care for it in that way. And so they sold it and made a profit off of it. And my mom generously gave me a big financial gift by helping me pay off some of my loans. Amazing. Which is really amazing. And I should, I want to feel incredibly um, grateful and excited and thrilled about it. And also I have a lot of like shame and guilt around it. Totally. That takes us back to the money is evil mindset thing Mm -hmm. and the struggle thing, because there's a, I really have worked and I'm still working to get rid of this. There is pride in poverty mm-hmm. and it's one of the kind of identity that's sort of like one of the ways that folks who don't have a lot of money take care of each other and generate good feelings about life is to sort of feel a pride that they can survive and get through it and they're gritty and they're scrappy and they're doing it and they support each other because none of them has any money. Like, And there's nothing wrong with any of that, but it's a vibe. Like, It's a yeah. very definite thing. And to have a big pile of money come into your life, suddenly that kind of jaws. And it really like, it really touched a nerve around my own feelings around white privilege 
and privilege yeah. in that way. And, and also by not having a amount of money that I was having to pay every single month into my loans, I am now able to give money every month, do land tax giving, do like reparations giving. Like I'm able to basically give that same amount of money that I was paying for these loans, which I was like not even really paying the principal. I was mostly just paying off the interest every month. That same amount of money that was barely touching my loan is now actually going towards things that align more with my values. And so I'm really like, it's, it's taking a lot of internal work and it's something I'm working on to like move away from this place of guilt and shame around it to actually feeling really grateful and yeah. generous and generative about it. Yeah. Amen. I love yeah. that. <laughs> Before we wrap up this wonderful conversation, is there anything else that's really present for you that you want to share about money or business ownership or anything? Hmm. What do I want to say about that? The thing that's coming up for me right now is just a reminder that we all deserve to be supported in all different ways. And so, yes, we can feel very strongly about that and want to give it to others, but we also are, it's important that we give it to ourselves as well. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, I want two more things from you. One, tell us about your favorite fruit. And two, tell folks where they can find you online. Oh, my favorite fruit. Yes, please. Mm. I like mangoes. They're delicious. I They like make my mouth kind of like numb. So I'm maybe probably a little bit allergic to them. Who knows? But they're delicious <laughs> and I love them. And I like um, just like eating them like from the skin. Like, you know, just like cutting into like it. Like an apple? Not oh, like, yeah. Well, not like that. Like when you cut it kind of like, and then you make the little squares like you do Got with it. an avocado and then you like eat yes. it that way. Mangoes are delicious, especially if you like pair them with sticky rice and ice cream and all stuff like that. <laughs> now I'm just getting hungry. I can't that eat. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I am on a liquid diet today because I have a colonoscopy tomorrow. And so mm. I'm not allowed to eat anything all day today. And so now I'm just thinking about food. Um, oh, I'm so glad I could help with that. <laughs> thanks. It's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna go downstairs and drink my apples apple juice Just and bone broth. Have a wonderful there you go. Yeah. So that that was the first. What was the second question? The second one is where folks can connect with you further online. So I'm not on Instagram, so you can't find me there, but you can find me on my website. It's just my name, amykoretsky.com. I have a newsletter that goes out somewhere between one and four times a month. And then I also record that newsletter in an audio format that is on my somewhat defunct podcast called Health Fuels Hustle. So you can find that on iTunes. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. If you are here listening at the end of this episode, yay, you're still with me. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll subscribe if you're new to the podcast. And also consider taking a moment to leave a review, especially over at Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do so in the show notes. Podcast reviews make a huge difference in getting the word out about Creatives Do Money, and it means so much to me when you take the time to do so. Okay, special thanks to Michael P. Atkinson for mixing this episode and for composing its beautiful music. And lastly, until next time, wishing you all money, business, and life success, whatever that means to you.